From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. As a parliamentary secretary in the former Labor government, Bill Shorten got the ball rolling for a national scheme to provide broad help for those with a disability. The scheme is now regarded as a landmark reform, but its cost is also huge. It's one of the big areas of government spending always mentioned when cost pressures on the budget are raised. The cost is around $30 billion a year currently with some estimates that it could balloon to 60 billion. On another front, critics complain about access issues and a range of other problems. The government acknowledges that reforms are needed. Bill Shorten, who can claim to be father of the NDIS, is now Minister for the Scheme and also Minister for Government Services. He talks to us today about what he's doing to improve the NDIS. And he's also one of the ministers dealing with the fallout of the Optus hacking crisis and we canvass where things are up to there. Bill Shorten, you've put in a new regime at the top of the disability insurance scheme, including appointing the well-known Kurt Fernley, a Paralympic gold medalist, as chair. What's your brief to the new guard? Let's rebuild trust in the scheme. After several years of what you could kindly call coalition neglect, a lot of participants don't trust the scheme. Having said that, there's a lot of success stories. There is a lot of good news. But if I can rebuild trust and put people with disability in the driving seat so they have a sense they're co-designing, that they're listened to, they're empowered, if I can improve trust, that's excellent because once we have that, uh, we'll refocus the scheme from rather than worrying about each line item of cost to viewing the scheme as an investment in people. At the same time, we've got to eliminate waste, overcharging. So there's plenty to be done, but it starts with trust and involving people with disability in the decision making. What are the major areas needing review or change at the moment? In terms of review, just about everything. In terms of change, not everything. The scheme was conceived to give modest packages of support to people who are severely and profoundly impaired to assist them with giving them greater choice and control in their life. That it was a radical notion, I believe, 10 years ago when we were championing it. It was almost a a left idea merged with a right idea across the political spectrum. The left part of the idea, the social democratic part of the idea was have a generous safety net for people with disability. If you like, the more right of centre proposition in it was give individuals control over the allocation of the packages of resources. Give it to the individuals because I fundamentally trust that if you give people empowerment and choice and control in their own lives, they will make scarce dollars stretch further than well-meaning not-for-profits, government or indeed uh, big institutions. Now, some advocates have uh, expressed concern that there still aren't people with lived experience of disability in management roles. And Dylan Alcott's report, which has just been released, says decisions should be made with, not for, participants. You obviously share this view. Uh, Do you think that the criticism is accurate? Yes, I do think the criticism is fair. I 100% agree with Dylan and thousands of other people with disability that they've got to be part of their own decision making. Paternalism, infantilising people, taking control away from people doesn't work and it hasn't worked. In terms of making sure there's more people in the National Disability Insurance Agency with a disability working there, yes, I want to lift the numbers, no question. What's the proportion at the moment? Uh, The 
proportion is, oh, I think it is less than 10%. I actually do know the number, it's, just, it's not off the top of my head. I would like to raise it to at least across the NDIS where you have service, not just the agency, but where you have organisations whose predominant function is providing services to people with disability, you'd want to get to 15% of the workforce. Just on this question of working uh, with, not for participants, mm. can you drill down in, into that? What are we talking about here? Yeah, okay. What's the problem? Yeah, I won't use jargon. What it's about is that partly people with disability should be in the organisations that are set up to provide them support. So that's one problem. Dylan's identified that, as have others. I think it goes fundamentally to the whole design process of the scheme. The aim of the scheme is quite radical. It is that a, an individual is deemed eligible for the scheme and then they have a plan built for them, an individual plan. Too often though, the planning's done by people who are perhaps uh, not as familiar with disability as you would like. Also, sometimes it's done at arm's length where the planner and the person with a disability never even meet, meet each other. It's done on the papers, on the digital forms. And I really, and also a lot of uh, families, people with disabilities and their families have reported to me that they have a great meeting setting up their plan, but then they get a plan which seems to have been written for someone else. So a lot of the challenges in the scheme, the disputation and the unhappiness comes because we don't get the initial plan right. And then you spend a lot of time retrofitting that individual plan in the future, where if you got it actually right to begin with, I think the other thing which is crucial is that when you give a package of support to a person, you can't just sit and forget. You don't say, here's the money and good luck. You've got to work with a person to help them navigate the system of resources, navigate how to get the best out of their package. So I think there's a question of co-design of the plan and then empowerment once you've got the plan, making sure that the participant is empowered to take full advantage of the opportunities that it provides. So is the problem here a, a poor workforce, uh, you don't have enough numbers in the workforce or they're not trained properly to work out these plans? I don't think it's a poor workforce. I think the, um, the, the people I've met at the National Disability Insurance Agency and the local area coordinators who help advise people, they are motivated people and quite a lot of them have got a lot of experience. But I think there is an issue around training and familiarity. Too many people who go through the scheme complain to me that um, they feel that the people reviewing their plans don't understand the nature of the disability, the consequences living with them. The other thing is that there is a numbers game here too. When the scheme got to about 180,000 participants roughly a few years ago, the former Liberal government capped the number of staff at the agency. So then what happened is, as you've moved to half a million people in the scheme, you still roughly have a similar number of public servants administering a lot more. So what was created was a workaround where you'd have a, a lot of community groups and, and providers were deemed to be local area coordinators, but they're not members of the agency, they liaise with the agency. So you have 5,000 people working in and around the agency, but then you have another six or 7,000 working in this sort of local area coordinator bolt-on and the reality is that I would like to see more of those local area coordinator, the bolt-on people, coming into the agency, feel they've got a career, feel they can deepen their knowledge and be trained. So it is a numbers game, it's a training game. I think the other thing which should be said is that we need to make sure that, to use a sort of simple colloquial concept, uh, collective noun, that the people accessing the scheme are not all white middle-class people with tertiary degrees. We've got to make sure that... You're talking staff here. No, I'm now talking about participants. So, you know, we need to make sure that 
the people accessing the scheme come from First Nations communities, that there's people whose home language trying to get into the scheme mightn't be English. And then you've got to have staff who are able to do that outreach and reach to groups who I feel are disproportionately underrepresented in a scheme of this nature. Well, talking about that access, are those groups not accessing it because they don't know of it or understand it? Mm, there's, there's two things which go to access. One is that uh, there is that sort of socioeconomic issue, that one of the things in the, the, NDIA, the NDIS, how it's currently constructed, is the more you can advocate for yourself, the better you probably do with your plan. So I do think we need to make sure that groups who suffer economic disadvantage are not being disproportionately neglected by the scheme. So there's that challenge of access. But the other thing is that when you live in regional Australia, uh, you have what we call thin markets. So you might get a decent package of support, great, but you can't expend it. You know, you don't say, oh, it's due to go to Longreach, but we had to cancel a visit for the Queen because of the... Uh, circumstances around mourning for the Queen, but my Queensland ministerial colleague went out there, Craig Crawford, and the reality is that they're not expending their packages like people in the city do because they don't have the services. So we're going to have to challenge access is about tackling thin markets as well. Well, how do you do that? We're going to work on that. Uh, I'll be announcing a re comprehensive review of the scheme, not to cut people's packages, but just to make sure how can we have a better design scheme which leads to a better experience for the person in the scheme. One of the questions we want to look at is how do we improve remote and regional services? I think there are models to do it, by the way. For example, maybe a council in a regional area can provide the services. And we, so say if you've got 50 people in a region, they still can have individualised packages, but where there's commonalities might be home care, might be a physio, could be allied health services. We funnel that towards a local provider who isn't fly in, fly out. So some of the aspects are individual, but we definitively thin markets. We give opportunity for some collective organisation of the back office of resources. On this question of access, is there a problem in the other direction that people can be accessing the scheme who have some condition, but not necessarily a serious disability? One of the challenges which has emerged, uh, and this isn't the fault of a particular government, I would say, it is that the NDIS is in danger of becoming the only lifeboat in the ocean of disability. In other words, if there are no other services, then if you have a disability, you're going to swim to this lifeboat. So one of the things that we have to have strong conversations with the states about is that the existence of the NDIS is not an excuse to wind back from the provision of community mental health. It's not an excuse to... Uh, not adequately fund kids with learning needs in schools. It's not an excuse to not have social housing policies for people with disabilities who wouldn't qualify for the NDIS. So there's a challenge there to make sure that we have a, a national disability strategy, and my colleague Amanda Rishworth will be helping drive that, for what we call the Tier 2 supports. That is for people who are not eligible for the NDIS but still need some assistance. For example? Well, I think education. The NDIS was not meant to be a replacement for the proper funding of special needs education. Mental health, there's about 65,000 people whose psychosocial conditions are so serious that they're on the NDIS, but there's another quarter of a million people who would like episodic or need or would be benefit from episodic mental health interventions, and there's not enough funding for that. They're are the we, sort of examples. Are we talking about conditions like autism, for example? Well, the way that eligibility is worked out for the scheme is there's sort of three categories of impairments. Some impairments are loosely category A. This is done by regulation. 
That might be someone who is a double amputee, someone who's deaf blind. These are profound impairments. Then you've got a category of impairment where there's disabilities which are certainly serious, but it depends on how that interacts with your living needs. So that might be Down syndrome or level three autism. But then there's a category of disability which isn't in one of those first two groups, but the impact of it could be of such consequence that you do need support. These are conditions which just having them doesn't immediately qualify you, but the presence of them and the interaction with how it affects your life and your capabilities and your core functioning then triggers eligibility for the NDIS. That's where somewhere something like ADHD or diabetes could be in those areas. So having the disability doesn't automatically qualify you, but the presence of the disability doesn't disqualify you either. You've got to look at all the circumstances and, and evidence. in those cases, you think that support in other by other means may have to be expanded? Yes. I mean, some of those people might be so sufficiently impaired that they do qualify. Uh, there are, you know, a few hundred people with ADHD where it's their primary impairment, they're on the scheme. But for thousands of others, I think there should be more community mental health and recognition. Now, one complaint that's been recently made is that older people are not eligible mm. for the scheme, even though they may have serious disability. Yeah, I think there's a legitimate concern for people over 65 that the cost of disability isn't properly supported within aged care. But just to go back to the origin of the scheme when it was legislated by Julia Gillard in 2013, when we were campaigning to set up the NDIS from 2008 onwards, when I was the junior minister, I looked at disability care and it was fragmented and crisis driven. The only way you could get proper support was to be in complete crisis. Parents giving up their kids, you're homeless. That's not a good way to allocate resources. And we'd look over the sort of metaphorical policy fence at aged care, they had aged care assessment teams, they seemed funded, there seemed to be more of an individualised approach. I thought, that's good. And so what we did is we then went on the journey to set up an individualised support scheme for people under 65, because that's where the gap was. Now, since 2013, it's just a fact that aged care has gone backwards. And now there are people in aged care who say, oh, let's look back over the policy fence at NDIS. And for all the challenges of NDIS, it is a better deal than some aspects of aged care. The parliament was very clear. It said that NDIS was for people up to 65 and there have been exemptions passed in disability and discrimination laws. So it's not discriminatory. But I do think it's fair to have a, a, the national conversation. How do we improve the support, recognition and cost of disability in people over 65? And you'll be launching some national conversation? I think it's underway. We're doing a lot of reforms in aged care. My colleagues, uh, Mark Butler and Annika Wells, are very well seized of this. Uh, but we have no plans to extend the NDIS to people who get their trigger disability, you know, once, once they're 65. Um, it is possible, though, if you have a package under 65 to keep it once you pass that age. But for new entrants to the scheme, once you're 65, the Parliament's made clear that, that you're going to the aged care uh, approach, not the NDIS approach. Something that you are fairly galvanised about is the very large backlog of appeals. Mm. Now, how is the effort to get that backlog dealt with going and how are you going to prevent this level of appeals in the future, apart from your general reforms? The problem you're describing is that uh, in, in the most recent years up to the election, the number of people who were dissatisfied with their NDIS package or a cut to their package 
all of a sudden, uh, it's just been an explosion in the last couple of years. People have to take the government to court, to the AOT. When we were elected four months ago, there was four and a half thousand matters tied up in the courts. Now, whilst that's a small percentage of half a million people, for those four and a half thousand people, their families, service providers, it's traumatic, drags on. So we made a resolution to, uh, and we promised this before the election, we've started now, blitzing the legacy cases. Review the matter, what are we really arguing about? Make offers to resolve it. I don't want to, I want the Commonwealth to be a model litigant. My view is that we haven't sufficiently been a model litigant. My predecessors and the agency were taking too many things to court. We were managing the scheme by reference to AAT. So we've now reduced the list by about 500 cases, which is good, but I'm ambitious to do more. I've brought in an expert mediators or reviewers Natalie Wade, who's a leading disability rights lawyer, Ron McCallum, Professor Ron McCallum, uh, Margot Donnell from, uh, from Queensland. They're looking at matters to see how we can resolve them without them having to go to court. No one loses their legal rights. In other words, some matters will end up going to court. But I think that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who deserve a solution-focused approach, not a litigation-focused approach going forward. You know, it's three things. Get the plans right to begin with, then there's less tears at bedtime about decisions. Make the internal review process more transparent. At the end of an internal review, if there's still a disagreement, I believe the agency should issue written reasons. They haven't been doing that at that point. And then I want to create a uh, alternative dispute resolution system where, uh, and there are plenty of models for that, where the agency doesn't turn up with a top end of town lawyer. I mean, the agency in the year up to the 30th of June this year spent $60 million fighting participants. Uh, instead, I want to make it a lawyer-free jurisdiction with an independent mediator who says, okay, let's work this through. Just on the legacy load, mm. when do you think you might have cleared that away? Well, I've been very lucky to have a Graham Minister Chair and Oversight Panel, and I'm getting more the calls out for more mediators to review them. I want to have reviewed at least another 2,000 matters by Christmas. I mean, these matters take hours and hours, and you think about it, there's thousands of them. There's 40 hours in a week, 50 hours in a week. There's, so I need to get more mediators in. But it'd be good if we've had a good, really thorough examination of at least half the caseload. But of course, you know me, Michelle, I'm ambitious to get more done if I can. Now, what about the question of fraud? You mm. did talk about this uh, a little while ago. Is this a serious issue and funny, how are you attacking it? My, my predecessors always like to bang the law and order drum, but they had a blind spot when it comes to the NDIS. They didn't see it. We want to resource fraud detection and payment integrity a lot more. You know, I'm privy to some intelligence which reflects that there are criminal gangs who are basically uh, ghosting accounts and perhaps manipulating participants and then they're submitting untrue invoices and they're just siphoning money. I worry that some of the crew and operators who are ripping off daycare or the VET schemes, the vocational education private sector schemes, have moved into this area. Uh, so I want government agencies talking to each other more. I want the tax office to see what payments, where they're going so that we can catch people. I think there's a general challenge with payment integrity in the scheme. What I mean by that is it's not that, you know, someone's asking for a grandiose cushion on their wheelchair or that a white cane is being, a deluxe model's being ordered or that someone's getting some super dog as an assistance animal. What I'm worried about is that between the taxpayer and the participant, there's a whole lot of rent seekers siphoning off money. Now, some of them will be criminals, some of them will be uh, just opportunists, and some of them will just be overcharging. And so you think this is 
getting worse or do you think you're getting that under control? It's only been three months. I've got to get agencies talking to each other. I'll get back to you in 12 months and see how we've gone. But the word's out that they've got an interested minister and a government who's committed to the scheme, but we're also committed to protecting taxpayers from rent seekers and protecting people with disabilities from rent seekers. So watch this space. Yes, I am optimistic that um, we're going to see some more busts, crims getting caught, and we'll have to make sure our payment compliance system, that the invoices are getting checked. Talking about taxpayers, the scheme's about $30 billion a year at the moment. There have been some estimates that it could reach $60 billion, which seems unbelievable. What cost estimates do you have for what it will be costing in, say, a decade? And how are you going to curb costs? Well, I'm not satisfied. I think 10-year forecasting is more an art than a uh, science. So I'm not, you know, I agreed with perhaps some of that language you said. Some of the big out-year numbers just seem massively inflated. I think they are. I've asked some eminent people to just review our forecasting. I think in the next two years, you can have some reliability about the numbers. But I think the further out the forecasts go, uh, I just, I don't believe them. Well, what will it cost in four years, the forward estimates period? Well, the budget's being prepared and we're looking Roughly. at all those numbers. Well, again, I'm, I'm not convinced that even from the March budget of the previous government to our October budget that we've got these numbers right. I think I'd be a bold man to predict more than two years in advance. And then I think it could be a factor of 34 to 36 to 38 billion. But any more than that, and I just think people making it up and I don't want to mislead people either on the upside or the downside but the good news is that in the next year we want to start turning this ocean liner around so to speak. I think the scheme's fantastic. It's new, it's Australian, it's world-beating. A lot of other countries, a lot of other people around the world go wow you Aussies have got this but I also think it needs uh, better administrative common sense. I think in terms of reducing costs we have to tackle this issue of double pricing that is the phenomena that you turn up with our little Johnny for a service and if you don't have an NDIS package, the therapy or the treatment you get is you know, $100. But if you say to them you've got an NDIS package, magically that same service goes up in price. And the scheme shouldn't be treated that way. I think that we need to have better policing of our invoice system. I do think we need to crack down on the crims. I think we can speed up time, the way in which decisions are made. I think it also involves a change in mindset, not just talking about cost, but looking at it as an investment. The reality is uh, the Per Capita Institute before the last election did some research showed that for every dollar invested in the NDIS, it was delivering $2.25 in return. I mean, sometimes in the modern world, we're hard put to remember what was said 24 hours ago, but I do remember 10 and 12 and 13 years ago, there was no NDIS. Because of the NDIS, we found a lot of unmet need in the community. There's hundreds of thousands of people just falling between the cracks who no longer are. There's now 270,000 people, and some figures I saw, who work in disability. This is a big sector. That is um, six times the size of the coal industry. The economic activity generated by the NDIS is well north of 50 to $60 billion a year. And most importantly, the individual experience when the scheme works is fantastic. There's 80,000 kids getting early intervention support. To use a lovely metric which Dylan Alcott and uh, the Accenture team provided, kids on the scheme now, disabled kids at school, record that they have twice as many friends as they used to have. 
Let's now turn to another topic, Optus, that you've been critical of it at the weekend for not providing information to Services Australia, which you oversee, and or at least not providing that information fast enough. Mm. Do you now have all the data that you need and what are you going to do with it? Well, so I get that Optus is under a lot of pressure and uh, it must be very tough for their executives. But the real victims here are the customers of Optus. And by the time the Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill and myself, gave a bit of a public rocket on Sunday, that was day 11. Now, I accept that, you know, in a crisis, we're all on a learning curve and Optus has clearly been on a learning curve. I think communication is getting better now. But what we want to do, the reason why we wanted the data is that apparently there's been 36,900 people's Medicare numbers have been breached. Now, that in itself doesn't mean a hacker can get into someone's medical records because with Medicare, we have multi-factor identification. Having the numbers not enough. But what we want to do, for example, where Optus has required government information, passports, driver's licence, uh, Medicare, other, other sort of government documents, is that the areas that I'm responsible for, we want to have a, a line of sight. Who are these individuals who are affected? So that if we do detect anyone trying to sort of breach the first wall of our defences, we can red flag it straight away. So this is about making sure that uh, the hackers, the breaches, the criminals can't leverage this initial tranche of information into something more drastic. And we need to know who's been hit so that we can start protecting them as best we can. Well, if you have that information now, can people who are affected feel secure or? Well, with Medicare, yes. Uh, the passports that's run by Foreign Affairs, that, that's a difficult situation. And, you know, obviously Optus is going to have to pay the cost of getting people new passports. Well, I can say to anyone uh, with Medicare, if they think they're sent, if they're notified by Optus that other government concession details have been uh, used, is we'll replace it. Notify Medicare, you can go on the app or you can ring a certain you know, phone number and within three to four weeks they'll have a new card. More broadly, Services Australia, it's a huge bureaucracy and many people, including low-income earners and vulnerable people, have trouble getting through it. And they're on phones for hours and just don't get very quick or efficient service. What are you doing to improve service delivery and are you reforming the MyGov website? Well, let's just tell it straight. We've inherited Service Australia, but some of what we've inherited is quite efficient. I've been impressed by the professionals and the people I've met at all levels of Services Australia organisation. I think there's a lot of learnings which they've already started to go through from RoboDebt, the illegal scheme, which was an unlawful shakedown of hundreds of thousands of people. In terms of phones, that's a sort of uh, pinch point. We have KPIs. They're not all being met. Uh, I've asked Services Australia to explain to me why. We have these elongated wait periods, which would be so frustrating for the, you know, the little guy at the end of the phone just trying to just get an answer, the, the ordinary everyday person. Part of the challenge they've explained to me in recent times has been with the spate of natural disasters, when you've got that, they have to surge up the workforce from other areas of Services Australia. So I think that part of our answer will be to improve our you know, the organisation of our emergency responses. So each emergency doesn't drag thousands of staff from child support, from uh, sorting out pension queries, sorting out employment, you know, queries and payments. I also think we need to look at how we're doing outreach. We have a net 318 Services Australia facilities around Australia. We've committed to keep the same number of Services Australia facilities. There's another 200 plus agencies for Services Australia. I'm interested to see how that outreach is going. 
I've started a new pilot. We started with actually those characters from Melbourne, uh, Father Bob, and uh, down at St Peter and Paul Parish and at all the charity there, and Brendan Noddle, the Salvation Army major in Burke Street, Bill Cruz in Sydney, and the Vinnies in Darwin. I'm embedding trained senior Centrelink staff in those outreach organisations so they can go and talk to the people who fall between the net. It's not a matter of do they have a smartphone or can they get to the office. They're just not on the grid at all and make sure that they're not getting forgotten. So the digital experience is where 90% of our traffic's going. We want to improve that. We're doing an audit, a user audit of uh, MyGov, and I'm very fortunate that... Uh, David Thode is leading a crack expert panel team, including Ed Santow, the former Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Amit Singh, who's formerly ran Accenture, um, Emily Banks, who's a professor of social health, and um, Julian Mungrant, the eSafety Commissioner. I want to see what the customer experience of the digital is, and so that's what we're working on there. We're committed to resourcing our physical presence, but I'm also interested in how I provide better access to people who, for whom they're not online. They're not, they're, they're telling you about going into a government building. So if you like, I've got a sort of multi-level approach there. Also though, I want to make sure that we're uh, keeping score of our payments integrity. I don't want people treating it as a soft touch. And we've got to get ready for our emergency responses. I mean, disaster season used to be one, you know, one or two months a year. Now it's practically every week of the year. Just finally, uh, there's a big debate going on in the Labor Party and in the community more generally about whether the Stage 3 tax cut should be delivered as is, as promised at the election, or whether they should be recalibrated in some fashion. What's your view and what do you think is going to happen? I'll stick with the Cabinet view and I'm not aware there's any change to the policy that we took to the election. And that is your view too? That is the, uh, yeah, that's my view, sure. I, you know, in 2019, we said we wouldn't legislate them. But by 2022, you know, it's a different position. These tax cuts were a lot closer. So, you know, I support the policy we took to the election. Bill Shorten, you've got a, a big agenda in a big portfolio. And thank you very much for taking time to talk to the podcast today. That's all for this conversation. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.